This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, it's Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Today, we have our first ever guest on the show, Mr. Dan Agnello. Um, Dan Agnello is a fellow history teacher who happens to be a Civil War slash Battle of Gettysburg buff. So today, we're going to talk about the Battle of Gettysburg. Dan, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome right, to be so here. I, mean, I always wanted to be a buff in something. I got, you know. You're jack of all anything. trades. You're jack of all trades, Pete. You don't need that. And you're not <laughs> yeah, buff. But means you're like, not, you're not that means buff. you're not that good at anything, though. You know, if you're if you're just decent yeah, at everything. You're, like, you're a Swiss army knife. It's okay. You know, Bruce Lee once said that he's not uh, afraid of someone that knows like a thousand kicks and punches. He's more afraid of someone that knows one good punch and practices like a thousand times, which is, uh, you know, kind of a good point. I like Dan, that. why, um, that's, uh, you know, before we get into, you know, talking about Battle of Gettysburg and um, talking about just, you know, Civil War and lead up to Gettysburg and why it's such an important pivotal battle in American history. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Dan. Awesome. Well, I got to meet you with my first couple years of teaching and um, I've always felt the same way. I'm now teaching at a middle school, uh, seventh and eighth grade U.S. history. And I've always kind of felt the same way, like a jack of all trades. Uh, year to year, getting new curriculums and new topics and just covering them and moving just like pretty quickly through the year. I felt like I always knew a little bit about a lot of things. Um, and then when we got to go to Gettysburg um, with some teachers from, from the school we were working at, we got to go to Gettysburg and it, it was fully just like caught me off guard with how massive the battlefield was and how much people actually knew about the place and how much there was. And I, I started going back one, at least once a year uh, for the next couple of years. And uh, it's just like, it's so crazy how much there is to learn about just those three days in that one place. So I've been trying the last couple of years to like learn as much as I can about it. And it's, it's cool to actually get to dive into like one, one thing. Cause I've never felt like I got to do that before teaching history. And now I get to kind of do this for me. So it's been nice and cool. Battle of Gettysburg, uh, you know, it's kind of viewed as well. It's the battle. The, it's the battle. It's the battle, right? Although, yeah. I mean, you can make the argument that there's, it's really like a like a trilogy, you know, in a sense of when you look at the battles of the Civil War, and oftentimes when you read about turning points of the Civil War, it kind of there's three that are mentioned. You know, first one is Antietam, which is the uh, single bloodiest one day battle in all of American military history. The second one is Gettysburg, and the third one actually uh, happens at the same time Gettysburg is happening, and that is the Battle of Vicksburg. And together, the Battle of Gettysburg and Vicksburg, to, you know, kind of are viewed as the that's the end, you know, the end, end of the Confederacy, military indeed. Vikings. Yeah, they're right. Not, they're not going to pose a threat to at least a threat to invading the North anymore. The war is still going to be going on, but that them taking over taking over Washington, D.C., that, that that threat is over after after Vicksburg and Gettysburg. That's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, Lee is kind of kicking butt and taking names. You know, General he's, Lee from the Confederacy, he's boss, right? He, um, he didn't think he could be defeated. He was just – whatever the Union tried to do. And that's really because the Union generals – Lincoln was always firing them. I'm sure Dan's going to talk about this. Yeah. But, like, because they just weren't really – 
even the generals here at Gettysburg, I know if they kind of push a little bit more, some of those historians argue he could have ended the war. The war could have been over in 1863, which could have you know changed a lot, of, a lot of things just because they weren't pushing. They were so afraid of having those high casualties because there was already so many more than they ever thought was going to happen before. Oh, yeah. Well, I, absolutely. I mean, there's a cool uh, a letter that Abraham Lincoln had had written, and he never sent it to George Meade after Gettysburg. But essentially, he was saying, you could have won the war right here. You could have finished them. This could have been it. And uh, because of, you know, not being more decisive in your actions and, and, and cutting down Lee once and for all, you know, you drag the war on for another two years. Did that as like kind of like a um, cathartic thing to do to kind of get his thoughts out and write the letter and maybe never send it. But he definitely felt that way about a lot of the generals you know, from McClellan, for instance, with Antietam. Oh, yeah. Although it was essentially a, a victory and stopped the, the invasion north from uh, Lee, he removes McClellan because he just didn't beat him decisively enough in his eyes. And then he puts in Burnside, which is why we have sideburns, by the way, to all your listeners. It's, <laughs> it's called sideburns because of General Burnside, fun fact. Um, so, you know, when you yeah. look at these these three battles, right? General Lee in charge of the um, Confederacy wins battle after battle after battle. And what really kind of changes before this particular battle happens you know, about two months before, three months before, and that's in May. And I often tell my students, you know, if there's, I ask them, like, what's the one bullet that was fired in American history that probably had the biggest impact on American history? You know, and the first one that kids usually pop up with is JFK. How much did history change because of the assassination of JFK? And then, you know, we kind of we that's, look that's into that. That's a future that. podcast beat. That's not good. Right, it's a future podcast. Future but podcast. then, like, we talk about, like, someone says, like, you know, shot heard around the world, Lexington. I'm like, eh, was there really even a shot fired? We don't know that. But I think the one shot that really pertains to Gettysburg happens in May 2nd. So Gettysburg happens in July. But this is May 2nd. And that is when one General Stonewall Jackson um, is yep. shot by, by his, his own, own men. men. His own men, yep, coming back. Right by his own men Sucking by accident um <laughs> and uh you know so when he gets shot before that robert e lee doesn't lose uh with stonewall jackson being you know ahead of his cavalry basically when stonewall jackson gets shot by accident by his own men he survives by the way at first they amputate his arm interestingly enough when they shoot him they realize it's him they're like oh crap we shot our own guy and oh my god you know it's stonewall jackson then they put him on a stretcher, and as they're running with him, they drop him, poor guy. Needless to say, you know, he dies from an infection. And when he dies, they say that that is basically the end of the Confederacy because Stonewall Jackson would have played a pivotal role in Gettysburg, and he didn't because he wasn't there. And it's interesting because when he was there, Lee would not lose. When Jackson wasn't, Lee lost. Right. And actually, we should mention that Lee tried to attack the North twice during a, a civil war, as opposed to mostly just fighting a defensive war. He went on the offensive twice going into the North and both times he lost. So, Dan, what are we doing in Gettysburg? Why Gettysburg? So we're we're pulling up from where Stonewall Jackson shot and he's lost in early May. And that's after they win uh, Chancellorsville. And that was after they had a big win in Fredericksburg as, as well. So now. Lee has a chance to really move into the north and put pressure on, um, you know, pushing for peace is a is a really big mission to try to end the war. Um, and he's going to be up there for a couple of reasons. He's going to relieve the, the south and relieve Virginia um, of dependence on their farms. So now he can 
get all of his resources for his men, the horses, uh, um, the food, the grain, all the stuff you can get now from the north and kind of give the south a break. Um, and it's the middle of the war and, and hundreds of thousands of people are dead. It's been crazy battles. I can only imagine what like the PTSD of people that time was. <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of wariness for how much war. I mean, 10 days after Gettysburg, there's going to be draft riots in New York City where they're so upset about the war and being you know, drafted. It's going to turn into essentially a race riot where they're lynching people in New York City, um, burning down uh, orphanages. And, and they're just really upset with the way the war is going. So Lee thinks he could really push if he gets a victory in the North, um, intimidates Washington, D.C., or gets close, a push to get for peace. And he's also trying to get um, support from England and France because they're kind of watching with a close eye what the South's doing. So there's a lot at stake for the South to have a decisive victory moving north. Confederate Army had, you know, hardly any shoes left on their feet. I mean, they were hungry. They were poor. They they needed supplies. And Gettysburg, which is kind of an innocent little town in Pennsylvania, became this fight. But that wasn't planned, really. It wasn't supposed to happen at that moment. But what you have is you have the Confederate forces that kind of lean into going to Gettysburg because they hear that there is a supply of shoes in Gettysburg. Um, so you can make that argument that, you know, one of the great, you know, greatest battles ever fought on American soil and definitely American soil, but also on American overall military history was fought over shoes. And interesting enough, that's a, that comes from uh, Henry Heath. He was one of the division leaders in Lee's army. And in his memoirs, talking about going to Gettysburg, he mentions that they're kind of low on shoes. There wasn't actually a factory of shoes in Gettysburg, or there's really no reason to believe that maybe they're even there. But that kind of um, myth of this of Gettysburg kind of comes out of this guy's memoirs, because 75,000, as you said, I mean, they are really low on supplies. They're walking crazy miles from Virginia to Maryland to Pennsylvania. It's 75,000 Confederates after Chancellorsville are moving north. And this this is taking place over like a month. They leave in like early June. They're fighting at places like Brandy Station where they have this massive cavalry, the largest cavalry um, um, fight with 20,000 cavalry in like June 9th. And they're, they're moving up and they, they capture 4,000 troops at the, the Second Battle of Winchester. And it's this huge thing. I mean, Ewell under Lee gets all the way up to Harrisburg, which is as far north as um, as the Confederates get. And this other guy, Jubal Early, he gets all the way, he takes it as far east. And what happens is Gettysburg has, I've heard 10 or 12, but they have a lot of roads converging from all different angles um, into the center of Gettysburg. And Lee gets word from a spy, actually. He was an actor because the guy who was supposed to give uh, Lee intel was off Alabanting somewhere else in the countryside. <laughs> so he was he heard had word that this new general, General Meade, who had just been in place, was coming up with 90,000 Union, and it's time for him to concentrate his army. He had his 75,000 men spread out, Chambersburg, uh, Carlisle, uh, Harrisburg, they're spread out all over Pennsylvania, and he sees Gettysburg as a perfect place to kind of congregate his men. And the Union Army kind of had the same idea, where Meade had sent some men up, uh, Cavalry Officer Buford, and he had gone into Gettysburg as well to kind of check it out. He had found that Confederates had already been there. They had already taken the town. Uh, they already moved on. And he knew that not far away, just eight miles away, there was a Confederate army. And he kind of knew to kind of stay there. And that ended up being where the battle's going to take place. So you're looking at about 90,000 Union. Union soldiers versus 75,000 Confederates, yes. right? 
Uh, the battle is uh, over three days. Uh, the second day, I believe, is the bloodiest day of the <laughs> entire battle. Again, this becomes the single bloodiest battle in American history. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and, yeah, and again, this is this is the battle. You talk to anyone about the Civil War, you just go randomly talk to someone about the Civil War. This is going to be the battle that they talk about. This is going to be the one that's going to pop in their heads. This is the battle that's etched in people's minds when it comes to the Civil War. They think Gettysburg and then what it leads to, and they think you know Lincoln up there giving that Gettysburg address, right, mm. with the body still all over yeah. the place when they dedicating the cemetery months later, like that sort of thing. Mm. Like I even well, used to show those like animated uh, histories. Remember like HBO show, like animated people of the world. And one of them was like showing yeah. Lincoln like, writing the Gettysburg address, going there and giving the speech and stuff like that. And Do you remember the Animaniacs episode when he's writing it? <laughs> yeah. And like Yakko and Wacko were helping yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's trying to figure out what to do. That was, or they was had any of that other one too. That was like, just like Animaniacs. So it was that hysteria. That was kind of good. That was kind of dealing with all that stuff too. I know I show a couple episodes. They have like a, a Tonga song about like Joseph Stalin or something. But we're getting off topic. Again, but it's, it's hey, we're, we're history teachers. We're supposed That's to get off topic. That's yeah. what we do. Yeah, exactly. we're, we're all over the place. They all, they all come back. So, they all come back. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, right. So, Dan, just like if you could summarize the battle itself, and then we'll talk about the significance yeah. and why this is the battle. And like you said, the magnitude of it is crazy. We're talking 51,000 people are going to die. Or not die. There's going to be 51,000 casualties, about 7,000 killed in action. Over the course of three days, 51,000 casualties, that's just like, you know, less than 10 shy of what Vietnam was in 10 years. So it's just a, a crazy, vicious... In three days. In three days, right. Yeah. Um, and the first day, the like I said, the, the, the troops, the earlier troops from the 90,000 group from the Union uh, move up and they set up and they encounter... Um, a couple of Confederates who are coming in and they're coming back to kind of check out, like you said, to see if they can get supplies. And they were ordered by Lee not to engage at all, um, but they do. Uh, they thought it was just a couple of skirmishers, but it turns out to be the full Army of the Potomac, the Union, and a full battle ensues. And, and the first day, um, the Confederates do come away with, with what you could say is a victory. They push uh, the Union through the streets, uh, they collapse their columns, and they send them back uh, to Cemetery Ridge. They capture 4,000 uh, Union soldiers and the Confederate flag waving in the center of Gettysburg. So it's overall a victory for them. But what the Union gets and what they're going to hold for the second and third day is a really strong defensive position um, in the shape of a fish hook. That's you know, kind of one of the famous things about Gettysburg is the way that Meade came in and organized his men from Culp's Hill to Cemetery Hill, all the way up to Big, uh, Big Round Top and Little Round Top. And they basically hold the ground. And for the second and third day, uh, Lee continuously tries to send uh, different attacks on different flanks and different parts of the Union's holding. And they fail. And it's mass casualties. And just different sections of this, this formation is just completely brutal. And yeah, that's kind of what we see happen. And there's a lot of debates, you know, militarily around the decisions and who's to blame for the failures. And that gets really interesting, too. But um, overall, uh, that's pretty much how, how it happens. And then on 4th of July, uh, the kind of last skirmishes kind of happened, but not really a major battle. And um, they leave. And that's the last time that the Confederacy is in the North. And as you said, about the massive amount of wounded, you know, the, the wagon train of wounded Confederates was 17 miles long. Pickett's Charge. Right. Yeah, that, so, I to talk so about. Yeah, yeah, so 
Tom, what do you got about Pickett's Charge? What you got anything? Oh, I just I mean, I just remember you always hear about Pickett's Charge that this was like what the high mark of the Confederacy. It's as far as they ever advanced north, they're coming up and trying to advance and basically it's showing what's interesting about the Civil War, what I like to stress a lot when I'm teaching it or when I used to teach it, was the idea of like this is kind of um, a in a way kind of a modern war. We have a lot of this new modern technology. Um, but it's also using those old school linear tactics. And this is kind of an example of that when Pickett's charge, these men are basically charging up a hill shoulder to shoulder. And you have these the Union soldiers there with their artillery and their Gatling guns, and they can just more or less pick them off. And even though some of them do get through, but most of them, most of them didn't. And it, um, it just kind of showed that, you know, standing this linear warfare shoulder to shoulder, charging at a stationary target isn't going to work. And this is like a mistake that if they would have kind of, you know, when I say they, I mean like historians or military experts kind of reviewed going into like that first world war in Europe, you're not going to have the casualties you have there. Is it, if it was going to, if it happened in the 1860s in the United States, what do you think is going to happen, you know, in the trenches of Europe? It kind of foreshadows what World War One is going to become, I think, big time. That linear warfare is done. Mm-hmm. Cavalry charges, things like that. It's not going to work with the advancements and, you know. Was the significance of this battle seen at the time it happened or shortly thereafter? Or is this something that kind of grew, you know, as years passed and it's like, wow, this is what we point to. What what makes Gettysburg Gettysburg? That's I've been trying yeah. <laughs> I've been I've been trying to like think about that because when it, when I first sh- showed up and like when I went on that field trip with you, you know, I'm just kind of taken back by the magnitude and all the different stories and, you know, the fact that it's like a movie with like deleted scenes and you just every time you uncover and you get a new one, it just makes the movie better and better and richer. It's a cool place to study. Uh, but trying to think from like a larger um, larger view of why it's really important and why it takes on this like huge persona, why it is the one place everyone talks about. Um, you know, the first part, you know, when, when you mentioned, you know, is it as big as it was? Um, I kind of thought immediately the fact that Robert E. Lee, after he loses Gettysburg, he writes a letter to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, asking uh, to resign. He puts in basically a letter of resignation, basically saying, I doubt my ability to lead this army anymore. So Gettysburg is a huge blow um, to his, I don't know if his ego or what word I want to use, but it's a, it's definitely a huge blow uh, to him and I guess his morale. Uh, Jefferson Davis, of course, refuses that and he stays in, in power. But what Gettysburg kind of symbolizes, um, I think, is kind of two things. One, as a turning point for the war, but also um, it kind of represents the overall identity of two sides. And for the North, like how you mentioned before, the Gettysburg Address, this battle, it becomes a space of, of hallowed ground, as Lincoln puts, you know, he says, you know, his words can't add or detract from what happened there. The men did it themselves. But he puts words to it by saying that, you know, Gettysburg is a place where people fought and died to save our country and make sure that we could continue this legacy of trying to uphold uh, the promises that were made, you know, four score and seven years ago, and it really becomes a, a test to the American people in this kind of thing. Is that we're gonna we're gonna keep this country together. We're gonna keep the promises of equality and freedom alive. And the people on this battlefield here did that, and that really works for the for the United States and the Union. But for the Confederacy, they too they need a rationalization for losing twenty five thousand men in three days. They need a rationalization after the war. For having a country that loses six hundred thousand people killed in the course of, of four or five years um, during the Civil War, and 
uh, for them, you know, if you're if you're following what becomes a lost cause myth, um, the idea of justifying the actions uh, by saying uh, we all the people who died here is because of slavery, this evil institution, that kind of there becomes like a cognitive dissonance to to go back after the war and, and leave Gettysburg with your tail between your legs and say. Uh, we all this, all this carnage, all the destruction to the South, all these things that we did was because we were trying to uphold this evil institution. And to admit that there's there's going to be a cognitive dissonance. So what you see happen is uh, this lost cause myth develop where people like Jubal Early, who was a general and uh, Jefferson Davis's wife and George Pickett's wife and the Daughters of the Confederacy and the Southern Historical Papers, they all start twisting and kind of changing the narrative of what the war is so they can kind of live with themselves. So they could say, we didn't, we weren't fighting for slavery. We're, this was the second war of independence. This was our attempt to stand up for the constitution and defend ourselves against a tyrannical North who was unfair to us with taxes and tariffs and the banks and the industrialism of the North against our agriculture. And we were defending our homes and they were invading us. Yeah. And it gives Southern way of life, right? Southern yeah. way of life. Southern way of life. Yeah. And it becomes to the South, this total justification um, that they could live with. And um, there's a lot of historians I've written about this saying, you know, this was a way of dealing with the trauma of the civil war. It would be too hard to say, you know what? We made a mistake. We did this all for slavery and we did this, you know, this was what we were supporting and that was the wrong thing. They, they're not going to live with that. So this lost cause takes on, on a whole myth of itself. And you even see it even today, you know, talking to people, how many people say, well, you know, if you, if you really study, it's not about slavery. It's about states' rights. It's about the Constitution. And it takes on this huge myth. And what I think Gettysburg is, you know, to kind of tangent back, is, is I, think of, I think of like a guy at a bar drinking a beer and he's like 40, but he still has his varsity jacket on. And he's just like thinking, like yeah. we almost had him at states, you know. We I could have been pro, man. Like Al Bundy, right? <laughs> just yeah. would have won that game if I just changed everything. Yeah, if Stonewall Jackson didn't die, if he didn't, if he didn't get taken out in the semifinals and he was there for that yeah. state championship, we would have won. If if Ewell on the first day just captured that hill, he was told if practicable, he said take the hill if practicable, and that was the big thing they talk about. Ewell in the Confederacy, he should have finished the job on day one when they when they won that first battle, but he let them resettle and form the defensive line. They blame A.P. Hill sending Heath in on the first day and them getting into engagements. They never should have fought. They should have waited for the, all the army to come in so they can congregate and fight Meade. They point to Longstreet, James Longstreet, who was also another general. He becomes like the scapegoat for the South in many ways for that war um, ending. So I think for the South, what Gettysburg becomes like this sacred ground for the North, because of what comes out of the Gettysburg Address, but for the South, because it's that moment where that fantasy of what the lost cause was and that Southern way of life and the thing that they were trying to build up, that moment becomes where fantasy was almost a reality, where they almost got their second war of independence and that way of life, that cause, that lost cause was almost realized. And I feel like Gettysburg really becomes that symbolic. The North and South, and for different reasons, um, it becomes like a sacred ground. Yeah, yeah well, like you said, in the North, it... it as much as it hurts the South, it boosts up the, the North. Like the, the morale just goes right. that on top of Vicksburg. They just go happy, um, you know, excited. Now they have like a cause for this war because they, they see that they're, they're winning. And then Gettysburg Address, like you were saying, then absolutely changes. There's a lot of their talk about how before the Gettysburg Address, American, you know, they start the United States is after the Gettysburg Address, the United States are. 
Like people mm. would start calling themselves Americans. It wasn't just I'm a New Jerseyan or yeah. New York, wherever it was. It's no, now, now I'm an American. Like that kind of changed a mindset with that Gettysburg Address. Mm. Um, what Lincoln does, and that doesn't happen without, you know, obviously the battle and the impact that it has there. So yeah, there's, you know, that's definitely, if you're going to go American battles, that's, this has got to be right up there. Absolutely. Mm. And Dan, a great point. It's like, you know, this is like the end, the realization that their dream is not going to come true. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. like this is, yeah. and, you know, kind of just piggyback on what you're saying before, you know, their idea as a Confederacy with, you know, the, and again, there's still historians, and I often get students as well when we talk about uh, civil war, you know, it's well, it's states' rights. So I, when I teach it, I try to teach it from multiple perspectives. So I try to have a case for everything, have a case for slavery, have a case um, for states' rights. You know, let's let's look at why this is about. But ultimately, you know, it was the states' right to own their property. Therefore, it was the states, they fought for their states' right, you know, to own slaves. Therefore, they fought first yeah, but how much, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I always had the argument. I'm never saying, oh, it's first state rights. And you can make the argument. And I know, if, I guess, you know, I have kind of that northern perspective with this and all that stuff. But like, yeah, they're arguing for state, state rights. But are they really? They're arguing for the state rights to have slaves. Like, that's what they're arguing for. Like, they're, they're trying, right. like Dan was saying, they're trying to have that whole, oh, no, we're doing for state rights. Yeah, but what, what was the big, what was the big state right that you wanted? You wanted to have slaves. Like, let's. Yeah. Don't change a narrative just like they like to change that narrative, like he was like Dan said, to kind of make it seem more like rose colored, but it wasn't. They wanted to keep the slaves. Th- that was the main, th- that's it. That's yeah. what debates were going on in Congress before all this, you know? Mm-hmm. And to say after the fact, oh no, it was for state rights. Yeah, but what was the main state right? And they, again, you just, you can corner people with that argument and they, they have no defense for it. So well, yeah. you look, you look at the Articles of Secession, I think South Carolina secedes in December of. of- 1860, even before Abraham Lincoln's officially sworn in, and you read the Articles of Secession that South Carolina writes, and like a big chunk towards the end is all about like the North's not enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act. Like, yeah. read Georgia, slavery is just like right there in the first paragraph, basically saying we are seceding because we are not having our ability to run this institution the way that we see fit. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. And it's totally about slavery. Yeah. And what's, you know, what's also interesting about this whole thing is when the South, you know, the first states choose to secede when Lincoln becomes elected, um, Lincoln goes out and actually gives a speech and he says, you know, I cannot take away your property as a president of the United States. It is not in my congressional power to take away your property. And, you know, there's this narrative in, in American history that, you know, Confederacy became a thing. Because when Lincoln got elected, they were afraid he was going to take away their slaves. But he couldn't do that. 
only Congress, if any any other you know body um, in the United States could take away slaves, or pass a law that would take away property, it would be Congress. And actually, the Thirteenth Amendment that ended slavery. You know, everyone says, "Well, Lincoln got rid of slavery." Lincoln didn't get rid of slavery. The Congress did. I mean, the only way to do that is through a congressional amendment, which was the Thirteenth Amendment. Lincoln mm-hmm. proposed it. However, Congress got rid of slavery, and I feel like Confederacy kind of shoots itself in a in a foot in this sense because the only reason, and this is according to Eric Foner, who's a really known historian um, specifically about Reconstruction time period, the Confederacy was not part of Congress when that bill or amendment came up for vote. So mm-hmm. when the 13th Amendment was passed that outlawed slavery, the Confederate states were not represented in that Congress. Therefore, they couldn't vote against that amendment. And the only way they were allowed to come back into the Union is if they adhered to that amendment, as well as the 14th and eventually 15th. Mm-hmm. So by ultimately leaving the Union in the first place, they five years later, secured the ending of slavery. You know, I mean, you could make that argument. Abraham Lincoln said multiple times, I don't, I'm not, especially in in the beginning, like you're saying, I don't plan on ending your institution of slavery. I don't want to see it expanded. And that's where that house divided speech comes in, where he says, this country is either going to become completely slave or it's going to be completely free one way or the other. Um, and Lincoln he, just wanted to preserve the union. Exactly. That's, that was his whole thing. Preserve right. the union. Right. So he thought it was going to naturally die out in the South eventually, um, just as, as times changed. But he just was trying to, he was, he was, you know, he didn't want to see it expanded into the new territories they got after the Mexican-American War and all, all these things. I mean, you seem to really like this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so any fun facts about the Battle of Gettysburg? Yeah. Top of your head. Well, well, first <laughs> off, I would I would love to tie it back to your last podcast that you had. Go ahead. Uh, you guys were doing assassinations, and um, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, for Jackson's assassination, the guy who who was trying to assassinate Jackson, or the attempted assassination, I'm sorry, the guy who was attempted to assassinate mm-hmm. Jackson, the lawyer was Francis Scott Key, right? Yep. And he got him off on temporary, uh, not temporary. He got him off on uh, to plead insanity. And he got the guy yep. up to charge. Well, mm-hmm. Francis Scott Key kind of has a cool connection with Gettysburg. Maybe not cool, maybe a little tragic, maybe a little, you know, karma involved. <laughs> um, but the, the first part of it is, you know, this is very straightforward, is he ends up going to Gettysburg 17 years after he writes uh, The Star-Spangled Banner. After he writes uh, Land of the Free, he's there to, um, to free his slave, Clem Johnson. So while he's writing those words, and after he writes those words for some time, he owns slaves himself, which is a kind of interesting uh, side note. But uh, hmm. one of the generals at Gettysburg, who gets a lot of criticism, he was uh, one of the Union generals, he moved his whole troops up from uh, the fish hook, and he made this huge like attempt to take a high ground that was really far away from the line, and he gets a lot of slack from that, his name was Dan Sickles. You guys hear about him? Mm-mm. And um, he was already had some fame because he was basically a politician. But he had earlier, he had developed this relationship um, with this lady of the night, I guess you can call her. Her name was Fanny White. Um, she was born Jane Augusta Funk. I really like her name because Jane is <laughs> a tight name. And he eventually, though, does not marry her. He marries this girl who's like 15 or 16, real young girl. Uh, he was like 32 when they met. 
um, and they're married, and she becomes pregnant. But he goes to England. He brings Jane Augusta Funk with him, with him, and they go into England. And when he comes back, he finds out that his wife is having an affair, and he kills his wife's lover um, in Lafayette Square, right across the street from the, the the White House. And that happens to be Francis Scott Key's son, Philip Barton Key the second or something like that. Um, so Wait, that's, that's the guy that she had an affair with was Francis Scott Key's son. Yes. So Dan Sickles, a you know famous Gettysburg general, shoots and kills Francis Scott Key's son in Washington D.C. And the way that he gets off the charge, and he's the first person to ever do it, he pleads temporary insanity. Temporary insanity. And he's the first guy to ever plead temporary insanity to get off with a murder, like a, a crime of passion. Wow. So kind of ties to Francis Gucky. That's an awesome tie. Yeah, it's like right? one of those like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon type of deals on your skin. People shooting each other. No, it's crazy. Yeah, I'm more study this stuff. Uh, all right. And then you guys were talking about the assassination of presidents. And with Lincoln's assassination, they were planning with with John Wilkes Booth and his other plans to assassinate Andrew Johnson and, and William Seward. I think that's the name. William Henry Seward, right? The Secretary of State. Yeah, that was a the, gruesome. We should have talked about that too. That was pretty intense. It, we were just stealing mostly with the presidents, yeah. but yeah, yeah, he got yeah. stabbed, right? He got stabbed like in the throat, but because he yeah, fell yeah. off his yeah. horse, um, like you know, a week before they put this like makeshift brace on his neck. So while he was being <laughs> stabbed, the guy actually cut his cheek off, but then yeah. the knife kept on sliding off on that brace, which is why it was it wouldn't get to any of his artery, and the guy lived. You see pictures of him, um, Seward later on, you know, Seward's Folly, Alaska. But if you there's actually uh pictures of this guy, and you see his cheek is like reattached to him. I mean, you know, thankfully he survived, but he does not look pretty. Um, gotta gotta feel bad. And his he survives, but his wife ends up dying because like the PTSD trauma of this guy breaking into the house and like getting on the bed and just stabbing her her husband in the face and like neck. It was like she ended up having like some sort of heart failure like a couple months after. Wow. But the guy who did it, his name he was, his name was Lewis Payne, or he was Lewis Powell. He ended up changing his name. He fought in the Battle of Gettysburg. Wait, he changed his name to Lewis Payne? Yeah. Wow. He was he okay. was Lewis Powell. He was in Gettysburg, and he gets like injured in the wrist, and he becomes like a POW. But he gets put to these different like field hospitals, and he gets transferred to these hospitals, and he's supposed to become eventually a prisoner of war. Um, but he's only shot in the wrist, and he's like kind of okay. Um, and he befriends um, this nurse there. Her name is like Maggie Branson, um, and he becomes good friends with her, and she helps him escape um, from being a prisoner of war. And then he ends up reenlisting and. Eventually, he deserts and he he takes the oath of allegiance that you mentioned before, promising to be uh, you know part of um, the United States again, you know, swearing off the Confederacy. And he changes his name to, to Lewis Payne to do it. But when he's back with Maggie uh, Branson, who he met at the the hospital camp, he also meets uh, John Wilkes Booth and Mary Surratt and all the conspirators, and he becomes really close with John Wilkes Booth, and he gets roped into being one of the assassinated the assassins. So maybe if he never got shot in the wrist, who knows? Maybe there'd be a different guy for the job, and maybe the story would be a little different at Gettysburg. That's a good one. I remember, Dan, you and I talked about it, uh, obviously not a podcast, but uh, so ownership of the land where the battle was fought partially on. Yeah, one of my you know favorite kind of poetic aspects of this battle, and something I think that gets 
whether it's because of how the lost cause narrative gets weaved into history. But of the popular story of Gettysburg, the black experience is really left out in those three days. You know, not much, you know, in the movies and stuff is spoken of the 6,000 slaves who helped Lee's army as they moved to the North. Not much is told of the 1,000 slaves who were taken by the Confederacy as they roamed through the North and kind of pillaged and raided on um, the different towns uh, before Gettysburg. And a lot of that narrative is kind of left out. Now, if you go to Gettysburg, there are specific historians and it's not totally left out. There's also tours that focus on this stuff. But popular, um, you know, understanding of Gettysburg, I feel like it really gets left out. And one of the things is Pickett's Charge. It takes place on this guy, Abraham Bryan's farm. And he is, he's a free man who is living in a farm in Gettysburg. And he's only about, you know, eight to 12 miles away from Maryland. And, you know, from the window of his house before Gettysburg, he could see Maryland. He could see where 87,000 people in the state of Maryland are enslaved. Um, and 10 years before that, his um, second wife came up and she was freed in Gettysburg and she had lived um, and she was kidnapped in the middle of the night by slave catchers um, over some quarrels about who she belonged to. And some Quakers in Gettysburg fought for a year to get her freed and brought her back. So it's just like these really tragic tales of, you know, like, Kind of like twelve years a slave type stuff, but this that was happening a lot too, right during the war effort, Dan. Like, wasn't the South like sorry to interrupt, capturing like some um, northern like they would go into those towns in the north and they would um, oh, capture they, former slaves or people who were free their entire lives. It happened to be African American, they would just capture them and like force them into serving for the for the Confederate Army. Yeah, and another thing like Gettysburg kind of ended. Gettysburg ended that piece again. They're not coming into the north anymore. So that kind of ended that practice, but um, it was a, kind of like a scary thing. Like some of these individuals were free their entire lives, and they here comes the Confederates, and they know, hey, if these guys win, we're going to be slaves. Like it doesn't matter what we were before; they see us as slaves now. Right? You know? Absolutely. I mean, once they're taken, they're taken. And the Confederacy, they show up at Gettysburg, which is a town of twenty four hundred people, and and two hundred of those people, one hundred eighty, whatever, around two hundred of those people is are African Americans who are living there as free people. There's farmers, there's blacksmiths, there's some guy who owns like a dope oyster bar. You know, they're living life and um, they're, they're living freely, you know, just a couple miles from the state line. But when the Confederacy comes up, most of them, they go hide out in the fields. They go to different towns because they know they're going to be captured. And on uh, Abraham Bryan's farm, who was a free man who lived in Gettysburg, Pickett's Charge takes place. Um, actually, in 1938, there's a famous picture of the Union and the Confederates shaking hands uh, over this rock wall that's by the high water mark of the Confederacy, the furthest they got in the battle, and they're shaking hands. And the background of it is Abraham Bryan's farmhouse. And I just think it's really poetic that, like you said, you know, the ending of this in the North, the, the decisive battle that will, you know, determine whether or not this fantasy of the Confederacy will be realized or not, takes place on this man's farm. So while the Confederacy is fighting to enslave men and dying to enslave these men, they end up dying on the property of a free man. And it kind of is like this really awesome poetic story. I wish it was a movie or something, but I, I really like it. So one thing that, you know, Dan and I kind of talked about uh, at some point, you know, just Gettysburg Military Park. Um, Tom, have you ever been? Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's like the trip you take when, when you're younger, you go to uh, Hershey Park with your family and, uh, and then you go, you know, hit up the Gettysburg. Um, yeah, I remember going when I was a kid, and then when I was a little older too. We went, but yeah, yeah. So that entire battlefield—it's a national historic park. 
is laid out in a way where when you're standing in that park, you could actually follow this battle. I mean, the monuments that are placed throughout that park are strategically placed to kind of show you, okay, this is where this unit was. This is Seminary Ridge. Um, this is the Cemetery Hill. You know, this is the Little Round Top. Like everything is strategically mm-hmm. placed. And it's almost like the whole park is one massive monument, right? I mean, Dan, you, you've been there numerous times. It's essentially laid out almost like a chessboard where like yeah. this is where like the pieces were and this is where they moved and this is where, um, you know, the co- things were concentrated and where different events happened. So it's definitely, a, you know, it is very informative, you know, as, you know, as in public spaces, these statues are often, you know, they were really political um, objectives to put them in public spaces and used for intimidation and all these other purposes. And on the Battle of, on Gettysburg, at Gettysburg Park, when I went there, I guess, you know, m- might be my, where my perspective came from, but it was, you know, very informative. You know, it was, it did actually serve a tool to learn the history and kind of visualize where things were taking place. So I, I will yeah, give it I that. I think it provided a context, you know, it provided mm-hmm. a context to the monuments that are placed there. You know, as opposed to, hey, here's just like, you know, you're walking through the park and there's a random statue of Robert E. Lee that was put, you know, put up in 1920. Right. Wait, what? Right. And to that point, where I do see the other side is the idea of venerating um, some of these people like Robert E. Lee and seeing them as these mythological, you know, godlike people, which plays into that whole lost cause myth and, you know, holding on to like this thing. But at the same time, it's a very informative park. You know, interesting enough, Robert E. Lee was actually asked to come to one of the dedications of the monuments in Gettysburg. And he replied that he couldn't go. And he said, I actually wish that you people would let this thing die in the letter. He Even at the oh. time, he, he wasn't really for keeping the wounds of, of war, as he put it, uh, alive. But it seems like that a lot of people, especially this lost cause, serves as a way to venerate and keep that narrative open. So... I wish I wish there was more balance at Gettysburg. I wish they did have more things for like the African American struggle and uh, the aspect of slavery and the role it played. And but I also, you know, I hey, I saw the statues. I, I witnessed them. I don't hold these people in the highest regards who were fighting for slavery and all these things. I I don't really venerate them. I look at it as a as a learning tool and a, and things to take away from it. So I don't know if there's a lot. It's a complex discussion, especially there. Indeed, yeah, yeah. it's like a whole other discussion in itself. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it does come up a lot, you know, teaching, uh, just teaching about civil war, uh, you know, with my students and trying to empathize and and understand what was happening, you know, in 1800s, 1700s. And, you know, when they do see a whole monument conversation come up, they, you know, they always kind of bring that up. So I think this is a perfect example of placing it in the right context. There was um, several Medal of Honor winners mm. and the last Medal of Honor winner the most recent one was given to a man by the name of Alonzo Cushing. And um, it was actually Barack Obama in 2014 that awarded him the Medal of Honor for his heroism at the Battle of Gettysburg. Nice. Oh, wow. So that's kind of still showing that, you know, even hundreds of years later, they're still, you know, handing out these awards that, you know, more information is coming out there. You know, there was like a campaign to get him the Medal of Honor for uh, saving the lives of several soldiers that day. Mm. Uh, so there's, you know, it's, it's still... Are, it's, I know it's a national park, but it's also a place where they're still conducting research. They're still um, right. you know, looking for more information there to better understand everything. And so more information is coming out. Yeah. And so it's, one of the, it's, it's a 
it's just one of those things that, you know, it's, it's history, but it's not over, you know? Yeah. Especially for people of Gettysburg. I mean, it was kind of a prosperous village. Right. It had, you know, local college. I think might've even had two colleges. It was kind of an up and coming little village. And all of a sudden it's thrust into history as, you know, Gettysburg, the battle of Gettysburg. And an interesting statistic is that corpses at the end yeah. of the battle outnumber residents of the village, right? <laughs> it was, it was like 2000, yeah, like 41, because it was like <laughs> yeah. 2000. This completely well, fundamentally changed. So today, a lot of like commercial developments want to go in there and like build up, right? you know, it's, it's valuable land and it's like a debate. Like, what do we do? Do we give in, do we preserve, preserve this battlefield or do we develop these like commercial, because it's also a tourism area there too. Yeah. You know, let's, let's be honest. It's a money, it's a, some of those, businesses around there it's a money maker for them you know? right yeah also another fun fact i mean you're thinking about what happened to that town after the the battle i mean even the amount of dead horses outnumbers the population of the whole town there's three thousand wow. dead horses on that battlefield and the population of the town was 2400 wow so i mean it's just like apparently the stench and the disease and the rottingness and the the horrificness of it is just like unfathomable they had to end up burying a lot of the Confederates because the Union took care of their soldiers and they put them in shallow graves. And eventually about 3,000 uh, end up in the Gettysburg Cemetery. But the Confederates aren't buried in there. Only a, only a few make it. Uh, but mostly the townspeople had to come up and pick up the dead Confederates and give them all these shallow graves. And they had to take care of the dead bodies. Abraham Bryan and a couple other... Um, Basil Biggs was another African-American. They were making like a dollar per body to, to get rid of them. That is crazy. You are the Gettysburg buff. I'm trying to. Yeah, you, dude, you talk to people who have been doing this. Like they do it their whole life. Like I, I've like scratched an iceberg. It's like unreal. The amount of like, it's like overwhelming. I'm like, I want to know all I can about this place. But it's just like, it's never ending. Well, it's kind of like when you start, you know, clicking on one video on YouTube and then you're like, oh, and then you click on another video on YouTube and then you're like, well, let me, you open up another tab and you're like, let me read this. Oh, this guy, you open up another tab and like this, four hours later. This is what quarantine does to people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you think about your students? Just like a last thing. What do you, you know, what do you guys think? I mean, Tom, when was the last time you taught? It's been a while probably when, since you taught this. Uh, since I taught Gettysburg? Yeah, it's, it's been a while. I mean, I remember... Um, Again, I would talk about the battle. I spent a couple, you know, some time on that. Um, but we don't, you don't want to get into the whole numbers thing, like this many casualties, this yeah. less staff. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, in, it's important to discuss, but they also, a lot of times, don't um, curriculum-wise, don't want you to focus on that too much. Mm-hmm. It was mostly, again, like at the Gettysburg Address. And I remember, like, yeah, doing the whole, you know, I, was the, I was like a young teacher wanting to, like, help the kids out, give them that visual, have them all close their eyes, and they open up their eyes. I'd be, uh, I'd throw on, like, a Lincoln beard and hat. I remember yeah, that. And yeah, and I would give the Gettysburg Address out, and they're like, "You memorize that?" And like, it's not a very long thing to memorize, guys, and stuff. <laughs> Plus, like, you know, it's a, no, it's like yeah, two hundred seventy-two yeah. words. Yeah, it was, very, it was very short. Um, I mean, that's a whole other podcast that's talking about the Gettysburg Address. But yeah, that's what I really mean. Probably what I remember a lot doing when I would teach about this was like, I think when we were younger, they made us, they made us they memorize it. <laughs> We might have. I might have had to do it, yeah. I think I had to memorize it. Yeah, when we were in school, that's what everything was. Like, memorize this, memorize that. It's, it's not, it's not this, it's, that's not what it is anymore. No. You know? no. Didn't they do that no, in Saved by the Bell, the teacher? Do you guys remember that episode? Like the when female teacher, she, she dressed up as like Lincoln. I think she did the Gettysburg oh, yeah. address. No, Tom used to do that. In my school, that would never fly. <laughs> yeah. uh, wait, Tom, didn't you dress up a, like, as like Deadpool for your quarantine videos? No, history pool. We call them history pool. <laughs> not, not copyright infringement. Yes, I would dress up as history pool 
and give uh, lessons on a couple things. Yeah, it was. Oh my goodness! You gotta do. What you gotta do. I have like a million random facts. So th- fun three- facts with Dan. Fun facts. There you go. You know, some, some magnitude numbers, you know, we're talking nearly 400 cannons took place. And on Pickett's charge, it was the largest cannonade in the entire Western Hemisphere at the time. It was two hours. They said they could hear it all the way in Harrisburg. That's how loud it was. One of the people who was listening to it um, was this guy named Schimmelfinning. He was a general from the Union. And he got trapped on the first day uh, when they took the town. And uh, he actually had a hideout for days two and three underneath someone's house. He totally like sat out the whole battle. There was 250 tons of musket and rifle ammunition. Um, about 7 million rounds were fired over those days. Um, one of the generals, Henry Heath, he was shot in the head, but he survived because his hat was so big. He had to stuff it with paper and it just knocked him unconscious. And like it somehow like deflected what? the bullet just enough. But the guy on the other side, John Reynolds, who was like a very liked man at the time, he was shot in the head on the first day. And he was like one of the highest ranked generals to be killed. And they found him with a ring on his finger. It said, uh, you know, for, for Kate Hewitt or dear Kate. And he had like a secret relationship with this woman because one of them was Catholic. One of them was Protestant. And they had to keep it like separate. General Lee may have been suffering from a heart attack or a disease when that whole battle was taking place. So something yeah, I've heard before. Yeah. You heard that before, right? Rufus Dawes, who took place in, on the first day, who, who fought with the Iron Brigade, he is the grandson of William Dawes. And that's the guy who, um, you know, rode with Paul Revere to alert about the British coming. You know, his grandson ends up fighting with the Iron Brigade at uh, the Union. Other famous uh, nephew, Jefferson Davis' son, Joseph Davis, was fighting with the Confederacy at the time. There's a, there's a cool guy. His name is Joshua Chamberlain, and he was from Maine. And on the second day, when the flank is about to be taken by the Confederacy, the Alabama with this guy, uh, William C. Oates, uh, I think that was his name. Anyways, Oates, uh, he, he tries to take the right flank and collapse the entire fish hook. Um, five times he charges up the hill, and this guy, Joshua Chamberlain from, from Maine, uh, beats him. And on the fifth try to take the hill, they're out of ammunition, and they have to fight with bayonets to the death. Um, and this guy suffers from a foot wound. And the crazy thing about Joshua Chamberlain, and he's like a professor, so he gives us a good name, um, from Bowdoin College. He spoke like nine languages, um, like super like just industrious and smart. He ends up becoming a general. At Fredericksburg, this guy's like the craziest, like I can't imagine the PTSD this guy has. Fredericksburg, he has to spend the night sleeping between underneath the dead bodies of his comrades because they get stuck in the middle of like a December night. And they have to use his friends as like body bags to protect from like bullets. In Chancellorville, he has to sit out because a smallpox vaccine had gone wrong. So his his whole company was exposed to smallpox. Gettysburg, he has that bayonet charge. Then at another battle in Petersburg, the second battle of Petersburg, he shot in the hip. It goes into his groin and like he has to wear literally a catheter for the rest of his life. He's going to end up dying from his wounds like in 1915, and he's going to be considered the last casualty of Gettysburg. But he goes on to fight again. Like literally, he was pronounced dead at that last fight, and somehow he was nursed back to health. He gets back into basically the ring, and he fights again, and he's riding a horse. The bolt goes through the horse's neck into his chest, the flex off the picture of his wife and his Bible wraps around his ribs and comes out his back. So, so to everybody who's watching, this dude got shot in the chest through like through the horse, through his chest. 
and he survives. He gets the Medal of Honor, and he loses it. Say he got a Medal of Honor, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, and he ends up losing it, and it's found some years later in a church Bible in my hometown, Duxbury, Massachusetts. They end up finding the Medal of Honor, and they saved it. They're one of the most famous historical novels of all time is uh, Killer Angels about Gettysburg. Right. I'm pretty sure he's one of the main characters in that book. He is. And that, that book gets so much slack for being like the Lost Cause, Lost Cause Bible, like making Lee look so great. And then the other, uh, the movie, Gods and Generals, the director, yeah, they're totally like... That's what I Jeff Daniels played him. I think Jeff Daniels yeah. played him. <laughs> yeah, he did a good job. Yeah. I mean, not as good as Dumb and Dumber, but, you know, good. Right. There was a, there's another <laughs> story that the two oldest guys to fight... George Green. So a lot of people give Chamberlain like the credit for like saving the Union Army because he saved the left flank. But simultaneously that evening, this old man, um, in the, George Green, he was 62 years old. He was like this engineering genius. And he built all these fortifications, even though he was the only division. And he withstood um, this guy, uh, William Extra Billy Smith, who was 65 years old, like all night and into the morning. And it was like the two oldest guys in the army, the oldest guy in the Confederacy versus the oldest guy in the Union. And that's actually what some historians argue was like the most important battle. Yeah, I mean, dude, I could like, I could go on and on and on, but <laughs> that, could, that could be five podcasts. It's like this Gettysburg podcast. It's crazy. Awesome. There you <laughs> guys. Thanks for joining us, Dan. This moment was fun. And you're, you are and forever will be our first guest on History Teachers Talking Podcast. What if that's a trivia question in its own right? That is. It's going to be a, tri- you're going to be right. a trivia question. Fun fact. fun fact, yeah. What a pleasure. Fun fact, I, fun fact. And hopefully you'll be back again. I mean, you know, we'll find something else that you're, you're passionate about history-wise. I guess that brings us to a close. So, uh, again, thank you to Dan. All right. Well, Go. just thanks, thanks for having me. Dan Agnello signing off. Pizza luck. He's signing off. Tom Reska, take it easy, guys. Take care. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.